everyone. It is then again with the Northeast Georgia History Center. It is a bright, sunshiny, if cold day here. And such a bright, sunshiny, and cold day just begs for a delicious hot beverage, which is why we have with us today Amanda, the tea mistress, who is an expert on all things of how you apply boiling water to a leaf. So Amanda, tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do. Sure. My name is Amanda Vermillion, and the name of my company is The Tea Mistress LLC. I'm a certified tea master. I received my certification from the American Tea Masters Association. Um, They're now called International Tea Masters Association. I do uh, right well right now because of COVID. Obviously, I'm doing online classes instead of in person, but I do lectures and classes, talks, tea and food pairings, tea tastings. And I also have a retail business, so I sell all kinds of different teas and herbs, as well as the accessories you need to make them, uh, teapot and teacups, teapot jewelry, things like that. So oh, that's, that's fun. My, I need to find out where that is and, and we'll find out soon because my wife will want to visit. She, I drink the tea as does she, but she loves the gigaws, I guess is, is what I would call them. <laughs> so, so that is fascinating. So obviously you like tea. Uh, I do. I'm, I'm guessing that we're both sitting here with our own cup of tea that we're drinking. So we are. <laughs> Um, This is a huge question to try to cover in just a few minutes, but what is tea? How did that start? How did it come to us? Again, I've made an offhand comment about pouring boiling water over leaves, but but how in the world did that come to be a beverage of choice around the world? Well, you know, it's interesting you should say that because there are two quotes, and I'm blanking out on the, the author's names, but there's a book of tea, which was written in Japan, where he says something like, tea is not but adding boiling water to leaf. And in the, uh, the, the Chinese book of tea, they say tea began as a medicine and grew into a beverage. So you're right on the money with that. And actually, in China is where we believe that we have the oldest written confirmation of tea in China. That doesn't mean that it didn't start earlier in some other countries, just that Chinese had a, a written language and a very, very old, you know, society as far as, as writing things down. And there are old documents from BC, like 2000 BC of tea being used as one of many medicinal herbs in China. There's even a very cute sort of folkloric story of the Emperor Shen Nun, who was also known as a master herbalist, was sitting under a tree and his servant was boiled drinking water and some leaves from this tree fell into the water and he was very very angry at first but then he drank this this water with this what became known as the tea leaf and it was delicious and then tea became popular because of that like that's a cute story but probably in real life it was one of many medicinal herbs that were being used and people found that unlike some medicinal herbs that taste absolutely nasty the tea leaf tasted great so people began to in effect od on the medicine (laughs) <laughs> Pretty much because, you know, there's caffeine in tea. There's um, theanine, which is another uh, psychoactive in the tea that sort of makes you very alert and focused. It affects your brain waves. So absolutely, it is a it is medicinal. It is a drug. It is pleasurable flavor wise. And you mentioned, you know, the, a, a leaf from a, a tea leaf fell into the cup. As legends tend to do, it simplifies it. There's more than one tea leaf, isn't there? Well, there is. So it's a little tricky because, you know, a lot of people like generally you and me, like regular people will just say, I'm having chamomile tea or I'm having mint tea. That's what in the industry we would call the tisane or a lot of people would just say herbal tea. So technically in the tea industry, when you're talking about tea, it's specifically 
the leaf from the Camellia sinensis plant. So the Camellia family, when we hear Camellia, we think of those big, beautiful flowers that look like a rose that grow on those trees. The Camellia sinensis, that second part means like from China. And the leaf of that plant is what generally is the tea leaf or what's called the tea leaf. Now, that doesn't mean you can't really have any other leaf or dried fruit or nut or bark or root as a hot or cold beverage, but those are more like a tisane or an herbal tea. Black breakfast tea, green tea, they all come from the same thing? That is correct. So black tea, green tea, white tea, oolong tea, yellow tea, pu'er, those all come from that Camellia sinensis plant and the differences in how, how it's processed. Huh. See, I, I, again, I'm sort of ignorant. I drink it, but I don't know about it. I just assumed that there was a, a huge variety of different plants that they had to go in and take leaves off of to make all these arcane mixtures. But Well, that was actually believed by the, the people in the West. The Chinese knew different, obviously, since they were producing it. But in the West, especially England, where they drank a lot of tea, they did believe that. They believed that green tea and black tea were from two different plants. And it wasn't until a man named Robert Fortune was sent over to China to sort of spy, do some corporate espionage for the, uh, the East India Company and brought samples back and they analyzed them. And then they, you know, even after some debate, they finally realized, oh, that yeah, these are from the same plant, aren't they? Well, and you mentioned, you know, the, the West and the East India Company sending folks over. So many Americans tend to think of, oh, a hot cup of tea is something very British. And but, but it there's a much longer history that goes along with how it got from a Chinese herb to a very popular drink in the West. So can you take us on that journey and, and how, and I know I'm asking a lot, but but, but you are a certified tea uh, master, so I'm going to depend upon you to do that. All right, I'll try to do the 25-minute tea around the world. I actually do a tea around the world talk that like takes just about an hour if I talk really fast, so I'll try to talk even faster. <laughs> so there, there's a you know the, the origin of the tea plant. It's Vietnam, also claims to be an origin country for tea. India as well, Laos, Thailand. So generally that sort of area of Southeast Asia, tea plants have been found growing, ancient tea plants have been found growing in those areas. So that part of the world was using tea. And actually in India, they were sort of eating it too. They were, and um, Burma, well, what, what's now called Myanmar, they have, they eat the leaves. They sort of ferment them and make like salads out of them or stews and things like that too. So not just a beverage, but first it started spreading with Buddhism. As Buddhism spread around Asia from China to Japan and Thailand and Korea, the Buddhist monks who had these tea bushes in their monastery and were drinking the tea, they would serve it, I guess, at Buddhist retreats and stuff like that. And these Buddhist monks would bring these tea plants back to their own countries. That's how it started to get big in Japan. You know, we think about Japanese tea ceremony and uh, it did originally come from China and Japan really did their own thing with it, where they invented these elaborate tea ceremonies to go along with the tea drinking. So once it spread throughout Asia and then in the um, Renaissance era, where there started to be more trading from the West to the East, um, at first it was the Dutch and the Portuguese who were really the the ones with ships that were doing all of this back and forth um, sort of waterway, ocean, you know, type of, of trips. And they started bringing back spices and silk and all kinds of things from the Eastern, the Asian countries to the West. And they started bringing some tea back. So at first, those were really the only two countries in Europe that had tea. And um, it was not something the average person can afford. You know, these trips were expensive. There's only so much the boat can hold. And it was really just the merchants and then the very, the royalty, the very wealthy people who could, who could afford it. And then it started to spread throughout Europe, uh, mostly by marriage, when some princess 
princesses or princes started marrying into other royal families throughout Europe. Well, they had always been doing that, but um, a Portuguese princess married Charles II in, in England. And that's what that was 1661, I believe. And that was really what kicked off the tea craze there because she brought tea with her in her dowry and introduced it. It was already known in like people had heard of it there, but she really popularized it. Uh, same thing where a French princess, I guess it got to France somehow. And then a French princess introduced it to the Polish court when she married into that royal family. So it then began to spread all throughout Europe. So by the late 1600s, I guess the 1700s, tea was really popular all over Europe. Now it came to the Middle East a little later. That was really a coffee culture. And then when the British Empire really kicked in, the British Empire really spread tea all over other parts like Africa, parts of Africa that the British controlled, as well as parts of the Middle East. So um, obviously tea history is not always lovely, like a marriage is nice, you know, but conquest and killing people and invading another country, not so nice. But tea did spread throughout the world um, in all of those ways. And obviously it was also popular in colonial the colonial U.S. for a while too. the, you know, the colonies as they were called back then before the revolution. And of course we have our famous, you know, dumping the tea in the Boston Harbor story. So, right. so it, it came as a luxury. At first it started as a luxury. Yes. Then it was, then it became big business. It really did. And as the ships got bigger and faster, you know, when they got the clipper ships, tea was transported more easily. When the British smuggled tea out of China and started growing it in um, commercially, I mean, it was already growing in India, but growing it commercially in India and in parts of um, Africa, like it grows in Kenya and um, several other Uganda, several other countries in Africa, when it became cheaper as well, because there was more of it growing. It began to spread around the world. And you, you mentioned that coffee was more popular in the Middle East. And today, Americans think of themselves as coffee drinkers or tea drinkers, but these two beverages sort of, you can say, came up together, right? Yeah, and you know, it, people always act like it, it's there's some kind of rivalry between coffee and tea. I don't really feel like it's a rivalry. I mean, people have their preference, but there are plenty of people who drink both, you know. They'll have a cup of coffee in the morning and then switch to tea. I mean, I guess they're competing in the beverage market for sure, you know, financially. But, you know, there are countries where both are popular, like Turkey, for example. There's, there's a country with a beautiful coffee culture and a beautiful tea culture as well. You know, and the uh, the Enlightenment, of course, was something that in, in the European Enlightenment, folks came together. And I've seen one quote that was actually contemporary that basically said, you know, the Enlightenment began with and was fueled by tea and coffee because they would all get in these coffee houses. They would imbibe them and all this, and they'd have just more and more caffeine. And then they'd be like, man, what What if the people were sovereign, man? What if we studied things more intently, man? And, and then it just took off from there because of, you know, the leaves and the beans. Right. I mean, was the caffeine fueling that, the caffeine and the sugar? Also, just then you brought up a, a, a point as well, which is that at a certain point, you know, these beverages, instead of just being something you drink in your home, there's something you would go out to a place in public to drink with other people. And that was a relatively new phenomenon for some parts of the world and first men and then later on for women to actually be allowed to leave the house unescorted and go to like a tea room or a coffee shop or something like that was really a big thing. So you're right. I think just getting together with other people in public over a beverage that was stimulating their brainwaves, it certainly did bring a lot of change to the world, didn't it? It, it absolutely did. And, you know, the democratization of, of these beverages as, as time went on and as it became you know business to thrive has to have a product that's widely available and so that certainly did it but there's still you know a lot of maybe not mysticism let's say romance uh, associated with tea and there are a variety of different formalities and tea ceremonies across cultures and can you talk just a little bit about those 
Oh, that's great. And actually, you just said the romance of tea. There's a we call him sort of like a celebrity in the tea world. James Norwood Pratt. He wrote a book called uh, The Romance of Tea. But yeah, there really is. I mean, just the song Tea for Two. Right. That's in people maybe a little our age and a little older probably know that one. Maybe the younger folks don't. But it's a cute song. But absolutely. There's also herbs as well, you know, that are considered aphrodisiac herbs, you know, sort of romantic things like rose petals that you can put in your tea. You know, there are different things you can put in your tea that are romantic. But just the act of sitting down over a cup of tea to face to face with another human being, you have to take time out of your day to sit, maybe prepare that tea. You wait for it to cool. You know, you wait three to five minutes for it to steep. You wait for it to cool. And then you have some time to really just sit, take a little time out of your day and really focus on your tea, yourself, whoever's with you around the table or right and and i think that's for me personally that's one of the things i like about tea is it it's a process right you have to to create it so and this this is a discussion we've had and gotten quite heated here at the history center so i have to ask you to weigh in on it keurig machines an abomination (laughs) you know Yes and no. I mean, a tea snob will tell you that that's definitely not the best way to get the most flavor out of your leaf. But I mean, really, any tea that you like is good tea. If you are in a hurry and the only way that you're going to get your cup of tea in the morning, either at work or on your way to work, is with that Keurig and that makes it easy for you, then fine, do it. You know, (laughs) you can always take the time on a weekend if you've got some time Sunday morning to really maybe make some loose tea in a teapot. But, you know, if you're in a hurry to get to work, you do your Keurig. <laughs> <laughs> do you own a Keurig? Or you I do not. Okay. that's. <laughs> I mean, they're expensive. I've priced them and I have I have so much equipment that I've spent thousands of dollars on. It's like one more expense I don't really want to <laughs> personally oh, well, deal with right now. <laughs> that's that's the, the other thing we've discussed is the world of the nerd and the, the nerd <laughs> goes in debt for their thing. That uh, is so true. <laughs> What did you call them? Gigaws? Yeah, the, the gigaws. Yeah, the gigaws. I learned a new word today. <laughs> so, you know, being here in the South, and this is this is a transition too. We've, we've exclusively talked up to this point about hot tea and, you know, you, you boil the water, you put it over leaves. But of course, here in the South, we have tea over ice. And we've even made sweet tea that sometimes is just a little little too sweet for my personal taste. But tell us a little bit about that, if you could, about that transition from, a, from an 18th century colonial hot tea beverage to what we now have here in the South. One of the talks or classes that I do is called The Real Scoop on Iced Tea. And I usually do that one in June, which is National Iced Tea Month. And it actually in the U.S., about 85% of tea is is consumed iced or cold. So in the rest of the world, hot tea is sort of a big thing, but iced tea is huge here, as you know. And generally in the South, it's it's bigger because it's hotter here all year long. And, you know, I had to learn when I moved here because I grew up in the Northeast. I would, if I went into a restaurant and I said, can I have a cup of tea? They would assume I was talking about hot tea. And if I wanted cold tea, I would say iced tea. And I had to learn when I moved to Texas 15 years ago, I had to learn how to say hot tea. I, I, I picked that up quickly because that was very important, you know, otherwise they'd bring you your iced tea, you know. Interestingly enough, so there's there's a belief that it started in the South, but there are there's a trail of cookbooks that were written in like the 17 and 1800s, cookbooks that were written all over the U.S. were showing that it was kind of a, a common thing in other parts of the U.S. as well, not just the South. So I guess when it got hot, other places, they turned to a cold beverage as well. I mean, the summers are hot pretty much anywhere in the country, except maybe Alaska. I don't know about that. Right. But um, <laughs> but it is definitely more popular here in the South, isn't it? It, it really is. And, you know, I, I, that's what I grew up doing and, and I grew up drinking 
uh, sweet tea like everyone else did around me. Um, you have to have sugar cheap for that. And that's something that only came about really in the in the 20th century. I noticed you had done, I looked on your podcast website and that there's a, there's a one about sugar on there. And I imagine they probably went into the history a little bit. So I plan on listening to that. Yeah, yeah, that's true. You know, how sugar came to be uh, much like tea, something that was exotic at first and, and only for the elites. And then eventually as a business, it took over mass production and it democratized it. And then people began to put sugar in tea. And if nothing defines, I don't think, that early British empire more than not just tea and sugar, but the capability of having that available for everyone. It's like a delicious manifestation of empire for all the good and the bad, like you mentioned. Yeah, very true. And you know, it's also interesting. My husband grew up in Texas. He's a he's a native Texan. He's 50. I think he just turned 57 last week. And he remembers that going into a restaurant in Texas, they never had sweet tea. It was it was not something you had to add your own sweetener and same thing in his house. And he tells me how his mother would make his mother or father would make iced tea. And they'd say you're only allowed one spoonful of sugar. And he would heap the spoon as high as he could and like move it slowly to the glass, you know, but I think that sweet tea, it probably started more in your area and then has spread all throughout the South to a point where the younger people, you know, I've talked to people born in like the nineties and two thousands who don't even remember a time when there was no sweet tea in Texas. And they think like, Oh, the whole South drank sweet tea, but it was more of like a, I think that's something that spread pretty recently. Comparatively. I, I think you're right. I think you're right. And I remember, you know, my first travels, northward, I realized that there was a very distinct line. If you if you were going to ask for, for iced tea, you got it sweet below a certain point as a default. And above that, you had to ask for the stuff to put in it if you wanted that. There's a chart somewhere in my presentation. I have a chart. I'll have to send you the link later where they show sort of like the line somewhere. It's kind of like Maryland, Virginia. And there's kind of a, a zigzaggy line that goes through where they, you know, whether it's sweet or unsweet, it's pretty interesting. And, you know, growing up where I grew up, like, you know, my grandmother would make iced tea at home in the summer, but otherwise we had the bottled, we had like the little, it came in like a little milk carton. We wanted iced tea at either, we bought it in a bottle or in a carton, you know, and I've, I've had Southern friends tell me of like the first time they go up North and they assume that it's going to be free refills on the iced tea. And then they have that shock when the bill comes, you know, because <laughs> the restaurants aren't making it in a big picture up there like they do down here, you know, they're taking it out of a bottle and they're charging you yeah. for it. Oh, the North. So, so how did you fall in love with the tea and how did you get to where this is this is not only your passion but your profession? Well, I've always really, really liked tea a lot. My parents were both coffee drinkers during the day and my mom did my mother was French. She moved here from France and in French, where she, in the French countryside where she grew up, there's a real herbal, sort of like a herbal folk medicine culture where there's certain tisons or infusions that you drink at night or you drink if you're having like a, a stomach ache or a headache or something like that, or you want to relax. And she kind of brought that tradition with her where there are certain things like linden. It's sometimes called down here, we have a, a huge Mexican-American culture and they call it Tilo. So a lot of people down here in Texas, if I say, if I say linden, they don't know what it is, but if I say Tilo, they know, or lime. I've also heard it called lime flowers, which is confusing because it's not in the lime family, but um, they would drink that and they would drink vervain, a mint, you know, chamomile, lavender, things like that. So I kind of grew up with knowing about that and then going to France to visit relatives and, oh, would you like a little infusion before bed and then having these herbs? So I came from a family of sort of coffee drinkers and herbal tea drinkers. Um, every once in a while, my, my dad would like black tea and they would there would be some twinings in the house. And then how old am I now? I'm 50. I was born in 1960. So sometime in the mid 80s is when I think besides twinings, like celestial seasonings kind of came around that time. And that was a big deal because you had like this 
this commercial company that was making these really unusual flavors of, of herbal tea. And it was so exciting. Like I remember the first time I had almond sunset, I think I was a senior in high school. I'm like, wow, this is really cool, you know? And then yogi tea came out after that. And that was another exciting thing to have those Indian spices in a tea before chai really, really hit nationwide. So I guess around high school or college is when I got really, really into tea. And I took some herbal medicine classes as well, because I was interested in that aspect. So it's always sort of been a hobby for me and something I really enjoyed. I have a lot of social groups that I'm involved in and that I organize. And for a while, I had a tea social group that I was organizing. You know, right now with the pandemic, there's not a whole lot of socializing in person, but I was looking for things to do with my tea social group. And there was a, a tea room here in Houston that was doing a sort of a tea 101 class where you would learn about tea and then taste tea while you were learning. And I thought, what a great idea. And there was a Groupon running. So I thought, oh, a Groupon deal. That's exciting. So we had a, a posted it on our group calendar and we had our tickets and we were, we were all ready to go. And um, really sadly, the owner of that tea shop passed away. Her name was Thea and she was really, really well known here in the community. There was a, the tea room, the, the tea shop is still here in Houston. It's called the Path of Tea. And I was reading her, I was reading her obituary. I had planned on going to the memorial and it said she was a certified tea master. And I read that and it was like, ding, 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 ding. This light bulb went off in my head. Like that's a thing. That's like a thing you can be and you can do. So I, I spoke to the owner of the, the head of the program, the organization, the American Tea Masters Association, talked to him on the phone, Chaz Kroll. And um, he told me that he was actually dedicating his next class to Thea because she had been bugging him for years not to just do a tea master class, but also a tea blending class. So I was actually the second tea master from that organization in the state of Texas. And then I took the second tea blending class offered by that organization as well. So it sort of set me on this path. So it's kind of like on one side, it's kind of, a, I, I hope that didn't come off too morbid, you know, like this person died and I got inspired, but she was a very spiritual person. So I feel like there was some sort of message from the universe in there as well. So, well, and it, you know, it seems, especially, you know, growing up as I did, hot tea, I had never heard of it. I didn't have a, a cup of hot tea until I took a trip to England when I was 23 or 24. And I've become obsessed with it now. So, if, and, and coming back to the States and actually looking around, thanks to folks like you, it seems like we are in a golden age of tea, the likes of which we've never seen before. Well, we really are. And, and I think a lot of it, that also has to do with the internet, YouTube videos. I mean, trends you know, food from other countries is just, when I was growing up, you know, there were not a whole lot of restaurants from different countries that, you know, we could get pizza. We knew about Italian food, but, you know, now I go to my hometown where I grew up and there's an Indian restaurant. There's, you know, there's every, you know, Middle Eastern, just people are learning so much more about, you know, these food programs on TV, the travel programs, the YouTube videos, just reading on the internet. People are being exposed to so much more than they used to be. And it's so much more accessible. You know, you can order things online if you don't have a, a a grocery, a, a international grocery in your town, you can get things online now, Amazon and everything else. So it's really opened up a whole new, a whole new world, really. I mean, our world, but. <laughs> well, we're about to run out of time. I want to thank you very much. Uh, it has been great talking to you. Tell us how people can learn more about the team mistress and take advantage of all your skills. Oh, thank you. Absolutely. I'm, so I, my website is the teamistress.com. So that's T-H-E-T-E-A and then mistress, M-I-S-T-R-E-S-S.com. I'm also on Facebook, the tea mistress. I'm on Twitter at the tea mistress and I am on Instagram at tea mistress Amanda. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and on the web. 
And I also have a tea of the month club, which is a really, really fun way to try different sample sizes of tea and get a mail to your home every month. So if you don't want to invest in, you know, a whole ounce or two ounce or one pound of tea, you know, if you're not sure if you're going to like it, a sample size of tea of the month club is a great way to great way to test that out. Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, thank you again, Amanda, for being here with us. This has been a fantastic and an interesting talk about a topic near and dear, not only to my heart, but to my stomach. Thank you. And cheers. Cheers to you. Cheers to you. Folks, that's it for then again. We hope to see you at our next episode. So until then, stay safe and take care. Then again is a production of the Cottrell Digital Studio at the Northeast Georgia History Center. Be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. It really helps other people discover the show. We also hope you'll join us for our free weekly live stream programs on Facebook Live and YouTube Live every week at 2 p.m. Eastern. Just search for the Northeast Georgia History Center and we'll pop right up. There are a few great ways to support the History Center. Make a donation online by clicking the donate button on our website at www.negahc.org. Become a digital member to receive exclusive invites to members-only live streams every Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern. Our next members live stream is a virtual tour of the 18th century White Path Cabin here at the History Center. Digital memberships are as low as $3 a month or $35 a year, and you can register on our membership page at www.negahc.org. We also have an online gift shop with lots of great items for all ages. Again, at www.negahc.org. We'll see you next week for another episode of Then Again. Thanks, y'all.